Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Fever and um, sweating, just a little bit of fever, headache, and lots of sweating, though. That's Robert Jomi. He lives in Pangerton, Nunavut. He's talking about getting a disease that most people in Canada don't think about very often. When my positive test came in, um, that's why we found out we had some TB. TB, tuberculosis. It might feel like a disease of the past for most of the country. The average rates in Canada are typically around five cases per 100,000 people or even lower. But in Nunavut, the numbers are much, much higher. In 2020, Nunavut reported a rate of 86 cases per 100,000 people. Last year, the hamlet of Pangerton had a serious outbreak of TB, the worst it's seen in years, to the point that healthcare staff there just couldn't cope. On September 9th, Pangerton public health nurse Jennifer McNabb wrote an email to territorial health officials. It says, The TB program needed manpower a month ago. The program is failing every single day. TB continues to spread. It needs help immediately. I have been utterly clear in my repeated requests. I am at a loss where to go to have my words heard. Kelly Grant is the Globe's health reporter. She's been taking an in-depth look at healthcare in Nunavut. She's here to tell us about why this outbreak of TB got so bad in Pangerton, how officials have responded to this crisis, and the lengths she had to go to just to get this information in the first place. This is The Decibel. Kelly, thanks for joining me. It's great to see you. Thanks so much for having me. This is our first in-person studio interview, so we're actually in the flesh here, which is very exciting instead of being virtual. It's very exciting for me, too. <laughs> so before we get into this outbreak that happened, I just kind of like to get a sense of, of Pangerton or, or, or Pang uh, in Nunavut. Where, where is it and what's it like? So... Pang is one of the most beautiful places I have ever been to in my entire life. It's located on Baffin Island. It's about an hour's plane ride northeast of Iqaluit. And it's at the head of the fjord. It's surrounded by these like gorgeous snow and ice capped mountains. Mm -hmm. Um, It's incredibly quiet. The water and ice are beautiful. It's really a a very stunning place. I was extremely lucky to get to visit it. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like it's it's pretty remote. So can you tell us how did this outbreak of TB actually start in this place? So we're not 100% sure where it began. Um, Most of the details I got in reporting this story came through access to information documents. And those documents really pick up sort of in late July, where people at the health center and officials in Iqaluit, which is the capital, are discussing how to handle a sort of increase in cases that all seem to be connected to one patient who's couch surfing not isolating and therefore spreading tuberculosis to other people. Mm. And and how how bad did this outbreak actually get? So it took a very long time for me to actually figure that out. Uh, the government of Nunavut has a practice of not releasing any case numbers by community when it comes to TB. So that meant that the first time I visited Pang, which was in October of 2021, 
when I landed and talked to people, I heard all kinds of rumors about the fact that there was a fair bit of TB in the town. Um, but at that point, there were nothing was public. There had not been an outbreak declared and they had not shared any numbers. But finally, in May of this year, they decided to make an exception and put out a release saying that they had uh, identified in the last 18 months 31 active cases of TB disease and 108 cases of latent TB infection. And for a community of only about 1,500 people, those are very high numbers. Hmm, okay. And uh, let's talk about some details of, of TB in a second. But I guess I just wonder, you said it was just May when they put out those numbers. Why was the government not releasing numbers before that? So when it comes to tuberculosis, the government there has made the argument that because their hamlets are so small, that even to just say a number risks possibly identifying who in the community it is who has TB. But just for a comparison, throughout most of the pandemic, the government of none of it did release case numbers in real time, essentially every time they confirmed a case until we got to sort of the more recent months when like a lot of different jurisdictions, they stopped sort of reporting every single case. So they were reporting numbers on COVID, but not necessarily on, on TB. Exactly. Hmm. Okay, so you said that um, Pang had 31 active cases and 108 latent cases. So what is, what? how does that compare to other jurisdictions or other places in Canada? Like, is, is, is this a big number? So it's a very big number considering the population. So if you look at sort of the previous five years, they, the, the average number of cases they identify in Nunavut sits somewhere between 50 and 60. And so to just have one small community with that high a number really is fairly significant. If you did the calculations, the rate would be sort of similar to what you might see in sort of a the least developed corners really of Africa that have quite regular large um, TB numbers. So before we get further into this, Kelly, can you just help me understand what exactly is tuberculosis? So TB is caused by a bacteria that spreads through the air. Uh, it can actually infect different parts of the body, but most of the time what we think of as um, the most common type of TB is pulmonary TB, which is it infects your lungs, and then it causes a series of fairly serious symptoms. So fever, really deep fatigue, um, bad sweats, weight loss, uh, troubles breathing, um, and eventually if left untreated, it can be fatal. So usually when people are first infected, what, they get what's called a latent infection, which doesn't make you sick and is not contagious. But it does put you at risk of eventually developing an active and serious case of TB disease. Then active TB is the kind that makes you sick and does make you infectious. So one of the people I spoke with in Pang who got TB was named Robert Jomi. And um, I met him through some of the people he worked with at the Hamlet. He's a garbage truck helper there. And he had been fairly open about the fact that he and his girlfriend and three of their children all had active cases of TB that were connected to this outbreak. And they were really sick last fall. They first got sick in October. They were in isolation for about two months. And Robert himself got sick enough that around Christmas of last year, he had a real difficulty breathing. Really, really hard to breathe. Yeah. Like my, I was getting tired easily every day. Like I couldn't stand up well. 
and he had to be taken on a medevac plane to a hospital in Iqaluit where they had to put a essentially a tube into his lungs to sort of drain off the fluid that was making him have such a difficult time breathing. And all of those were um, related to his TB infection. So that sounds pretty serious. I mean, this this man had to be medevaced out because he couldn't breathe. Uh, this is not a disease, though, that honestly, most of us in southern Canada even think about these days. Why is it so prevalent in the North today? A way to think about tuberculosis is it's a social disease and it thrives in conditions that are not particularly conducive to good health, like overcrowded housing. I mean, the housing crisis in in, in the North is just, it's almost hard to fathom if you haven't a chance to visit there. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, almost every house I visited had, you know, families, multiple families living together in, say, a two-bedroom home. And so when things are really overcrowded and the housing doesn't have great ventilation, it's substandard, that is an atmosphere where TB can spread quite easily. Then you add poverty. You add um, the people being really undernourished. Food is so expensive there. There is a huge amount of chronic disease um, in these communities. And then there's just not great frontline healthcare services. So a place like Pang has, you know, a couple of mostly temporary nurses working at a fly-in health center. And, you know, as I learned while reporting this story, you know, the kind of sort of on the ground, testing, contact tracing, isolating of cases with TB, you know, it requires a really sort of robust medical response. Mm -hmm. And often these communities just don't have that level of medical service available to them. Mm, Yeah. That's that's actually a really important point then. You're saying there's a lot of actually social factors that kind of are built into why it's such an issue up there. What were the challenges for the nursing staff? You mentioned that there's actually there's not a lot of infrastructure there in terms of healthcare. So what what kind of challenges were nursing staff facing during this outbreak? So I think the first thing to understand is how labor intensive it is to try to manage a TB outbreak. TB outbreaks often last for years, and what you need to do to um, to diagnose TB. So first you need to get people to come in and be willing to be screened, right? And then if they've got a latent infection, what you're gonna need to do is either a blood test or something called a tuberculin skin test. And so from there, then you have to determine, okay, so is it active and are they contagious? So then you're taking sputum samples, you're doing chest chest x-rays, pardon me. You're doing a physical exam. Um, All of it is, is fairly labor intensive. It requires nursing staff. And then each time you find a new case, you then have to track down all of their contacts and do the same procedure. So with each new case, the the workload swells. And so what Pangerton didn't have was the labor force. They just, the nursing shortage nationally has just really hit none of it super hard. I talked to Eve Panaton, who was the nurse in charge of the Pangerton Health Center between March and September of 2021. And he told me that particularly in the summer, they were really struggling with the spread of TB. I was barely surviving in maintaining a reasonably decent minimum, bare minimum care to my to my population if we would have been given like another public health nurse like I, like I wanted to have and we would have been able to Maybe not stop it, but certainly mitigate it. I mean, this sounds like a pretty serious situation here. You've got healthcare providers saying this is something we need help with. This we should consider this an outbreak. Why? Why wasn't this declared an outbreak sooner? 
So in the emails that I was able to access, the chief public health officer for Nunavut and other officials connected to the TB program said that they considered the situation in Pang to be a cluster and not an outbreak. They said they would not consider it an outbreak until they found some standalone cases that didn't seem to be connected to any other cases. Mm. Um, But the practical effect of calling it a cluster rather than an outbreak is that there was no public announcement to people in Pangerton or to the broader public elsewhere in the country that this situation was happening. So when I was speaking with, with Eve Panaton, the nurse in charge, you know, what he said was that waiting to sort of publicly declare an outbreak and bring in more staff, which is something that the government of Nunavut was able to do um, beginning in the fall, but that the waiting to both declare an outbreak and to bring in more staff earlier on really made the outbreak worse than it needed to be. And that hesitation, that few months of hesitation made the whole difference. That, those, right? that, that, that few months of hesitation made all the difference. Yeah, for the worst. Now, you mentioned before, Kelly, that the government didn't want to release numbers on, on the numbers of TB, TB cases because it, they felt it might stigmatize people. Could you just kind of really expel that out for us? What, what's the concern there? Their concern really is that um, people who live in these communities, they're very small, that when they go to other places, people will say, oh, you're from Pang. I know they've got a big TB outbreak. And they'll sort of avoid them and stay away from them. They do say as well that they're worried because these communities are so small that if you were to release small numbers, there's a chance people could be identified. Now, Mm. I mean, one thing I did notice while I was visiting Pang is, I mean, these are very small communities. Um, Rumors fly. It's, I think, fairly difficult for for secrets to exist there in the first place. Um, So, you know, I would argue it's hard to say that, you know, saying the number – 31 or the number five or the number 10 without any other identifying details would um, would risk identifying individuals. And I should say that the privacy commissioner of none of it um, agrees with me on that. So to just tell you a little bit more about how I got the information that I did wind up getting, uh, I went through the access to information process, was told that they would not they being the government of none of it, wouldn't release any numbers by community. So I appealed that decision to the Information and Privacy Commissioner of none of it. Um, He then released a ruling on February 7th saying that absolutely the government should release this information. So I went So I went to, to, to Pang twice. I went in October and I went back again in May. And after my trip in May, I sent the government a list of a long list of questions um, about how it handled this outbreak. I also had a conversation with Mayor Eric Lawler about the fact that this information wasn't public. The numbers should be known to, made aware to the, the community. Mm-hmm. And they, they realize how serious it actually is and they take precautions themselves. But in not knowing the numbers, we don't realize how bad it is. We let our guard down. And after we spoke... He approached the government and said, like, hey, my community would really like these numbers. And so about a week after I sent that email and had a conversation with Eric, the government of Nunavut put out a press release um, announcing these numbers, saying that in the case of this outbreak, it would update the numbers every three months and saying as well that it looks like the curve is flattening. Things are, are sort of looking a bit better for where the outbreak's headed. 
So one of the other important players I spoke with here is Aluki Kotierk, who's the president of Nunavut Tongavik Inc., which is the main Inuit land claims organization for Nunavut. And she and her organization have been pushing for a long time to have this kind of information made public about individual TB outbreaks and case numbers in individual hamlets. And so I asked her what she thinks of the government's argument that stigma is a reason to not release these numbers. Because to me, it's creating more shame and stigma, the secrecy. I think by not sharing the information and talking about stigma, it continues to perpetuate that colonial approach that we can't make decisions on ourselves about our own health, that we're not self-determining, intelligent people. So what are the consequences then of, of, of not putting those numbers out in the community so people know what's what's going on? So I think the consequence is really that rumors fly, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that there was some sort of TB problem going on in Pang before the outbreak was announced and certainly before the numbers were shared. But it really seems to me when I spoke with people, it it seemed to further erode their trust in the health center and the government when they couldn't get answers about what was happening. And so one of the people who I asked about that was Madeline Kamatak, who is the community wellness coordinator in Pang. That's a job where, you know, she helps run sort of wellness programs for people in the community. And, you know, she's a longtime Pang resident and found it really frustrating that she couldn't figure out what was actually going on. It's really telling to me how bad our health system is. Mm-hmm. How they're not proactive in prevention. Yeah, that's the word, prevention. Like, now, why would they be so secretive that they're trying to prevent? You can't be secretive and then do prevention. I mean, they got to be truthful to us. You also asked Aluki Kotierk about this. So, so what did she say? So she also made the point that keeping the numbers secret allows the rest of Canada to sort of look the other way and not pay attention to the social problems that give rise to TB in Inuit communities. I mean, the other really good thing is that if it's provided publicly, the rest of Canada can't forget that we have a tuberculosis crisis in the country. So it sounds like, honestly, there was a, a pretty serious situation up there, especially at the, the, the heart of this outbreak, Kelly. What, what did they end up actually doing to, to curb the spread and, and to, to stop the outbreak? So they were able to bring in some more public health nurses as the fall and winter went on. Um, so they did get a few more people, and that seems to have started helping things. The other thing they did was set up a satellite clinic, which is essentially sort of an overflow space for the public health staff that were working in the health center. So the the territorial government is saying that the curve is flattened with this outbreak. It's it's not not quite as dire as it, as it was, but but what needs to happen in order to prevent something like this from from happening again? I'm glad you asked about trying to prevent this from happening again because the federal government and um, the main national Inuit organization which is called ITK they made a promise in 2018 to actually eliminate TB in Inuit communities by 2030. So what needs to be done to get them there, right? Well, there's the big picture stuff, right, which is trying to improve the housing situation, right? Just building more houses. Like Pang hadn't had a new social housing unit built in a decade when I was there. Oh. So 
So housing is a huge part of it. Um, Food security is a huge part of it. Um, Improving day-to-day care, trying to get people um, help with their chronic diseases, help with quitting smoking, which is another sort of huge underlying factor for for TB in the North. And then there's the, the sort of medical care stuff because TB, with some effort, can be medically controlled. And so what that means is trying to find permanent staff who are willing to work at the health centers and can develop the kind of like trusting relationships with people in the community so that they can be regularly screening people from TB for TB and giving them treatment for latent infection before it becomes an active case. So you need to do these big picture things and they also need to do the basics of good TB control. Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to, to help us understand this. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our summer producer is Zara Kozema. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.